Welcome to Friars and Film. We are three Catholic priests from the Order of Preachers, and we're here, as always, to talk about the movies. Okay, welcome back to the podcast. Today we're talking about The Ten Commandments, 1956, by Cecil B. DeMille. Cecil, right? Cecil. Okay. This is a film that I caught growing up in Catholic school, in snippets, even into high school. So it's hard to be a Christian in the second part of the 20th century without, without having some of this movie's imagery in your imagination when you're uh, thinking about God and hearing the Word of God. And it, it also has a fairly traditional interpretation of the biblical narrative. You know, recently we had a movie called Noah. Uh, I think it was called Noah. The basic elements in a different light. Um, but this is fairly faithful. Anything jump out at you at the beginning? Uh, I will just say as far as first impressions go, yeah, I found myself going back and forth between wow in a good way and wow in a not-so-good way. Um so it's like number one, wow! Just seeing the sets, the colors, just the the, sh- the sheer ambition of the production. Like you mentioned, Father Allen, this is a film that's just very big in American cinematic history. It looms large in the 1950s um, for just film production, and you can see why just watching it again. I mean, even being you know whatever we are, almost 70 years removed from it now, it's still has just this sense of epic grandeur. Um, so there's that on the one hand, and then I, you know, pretty quickly after that initial impression, I, as I continued watching it, began to feel the other wow, which is, wow, this is so preposterous. There were so many moments where it just kind of feels like a B-grade romance novel set in ancient Egypt. You know, you have so many of these shots of these, uh, you know, bare-chested, strong, hunky men in these various ridiculous poses of uh, importance and, you know, linen-draped women lounging on sofas. Yeah, it's just so ridiculous on uh, on that level. But then again, you know, I would, I would then continue watching it and uh, I just feel so impressed. So, um, yeah, just seeing Ann Baxter playing Nefertari, she is just going all in, seeing Yul Brynner, being Ramses, he is going absolutely all in. He's just such a commanding actor. I mean, you really get a sense for just his huge mass appeal and and power and charisma. Um, he's completely rocking the Egyptian headdress, by the way. I just have to say that. But then, but then, yeah, then you keep on going, and um, yeah, uh, I, f- I found that like once you get past the the very still very incredible Red Sea parting. Um, once it enters into the whole Mount Sinai section, it just becomes just so incredibly cheesy, uh, just with, you know, the depiction of the pillar of fire, the depiction of God's voice etching the Ten Commandments into the stone, almost all of Charlton Heston's sort of old Moses, right? There's like the, the different ages of Moses throughout the film. I found like all of his sort of 
first half Moses to be very, very just uh, convincing and, and impressive. And then pretty much all the second half Moses just found it all kind of ridiculous um, with all of his lines and poses. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of the definition of big cinema and impressive cinema. It's also kind of the definition of a pretty heavy handed film. Overall, pleasure to watch. I think this is one of the first films in a while we probably see the film very similarly between the three of us. Probably the same evaluation. Yeah, the, the, there's a lot of soap opera for about two and a half hours until they cross the Red Sea. You could even rename the first half like Cairo Connections or something <laughs> stupid like that. You know what? When we were in the Novitiate, we read at table. People don't always know this, but certain Dominican houses... You actually sit at mealtime and somebody reads a book to you, which is a, which is an ancient monastic custom. So we did that in our Cincinnati year in Novitiate. And I remember, so Louis DeWall is the one that, the author that writes about like saints biographies, but they're colorful. And it was kind of the same thing there. We read the Thomas Aquinas biography, but it had a lot of Thomas Aquinas's sisters falling in love with certain guys. There was a lot of cat and mouse for an Aquinas biography. It was like, what are we, what are we doing here? And I feel like this was the same tenor as this attempt to make it more human. But I think, I, so it didn't bother me at the time that there was this lingering with these women. What bothered me was that they used up their given four hours and all they had time for really was crossing the Red Sea and the 40 years in the desert, which are full of, I mean, I love the book of Exodus and I've learned to love it. You have all these different episodes, but the wandering, the bronze serpent, um, Moses up on the mountain, all of that was curtailed to about 10 minutes, right? I had um, maybe 15 minutes out of a four hour movie, right? It's like, why did you guys spend all your time in Egypt instead of our, like the book of numbers more in the wandering and the reconnoitering the land. Um, so I, I just, I felt like the movie was, it kind of sidelined itself. It's like, you've, you've been given a four hour window guys. And now you have 10 minutes for 40 years in the desert, which is actually much more interesting than these ladies who were trying to hit on Moses the whole movie. <laughs> so I just, I felt like it was, I was, I, I'm not actually complaining. I was actually surprised. I enjoyed the journey, but I was, my, my honest reaction was, you really did that with the four hours given to you? It's like, I was actually surprised how much of it was cut short in the end and crammed into the last, you know, like even, even Joshua, right? Like it's after Moses dies, after he goes up Mount Nebo, um, where Joshua sits the people down, just like Moses in Deuteronomy had sat them down and says, I lay before you two ways, life and death, blessing and curse. And Joshua does the same thing. They cross the River Jordan. They celebrate the Passover. That's when he reads from the law and says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Whereas they take like one phrase of Moses's final sermon on the plain, and he just kind of says randomly, I set before you two ways, blessing and curse. And Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's like, you're taking these amazing final sermons and you didn't have time for them. So you just throw in these lines. Moses walks up the trail. He waves at them on going up Mount Nebo. And the movie ends with Moses waving at Joshua and like a couple of people. It's like, I thought, I thought it was one of the worst endings of a movie ever, but I really liked the rest of the movie. 
Kind of but, like Return of the King, right? Great movie, but then just horrible last last portion. Yeah, Frodo's just like it's like <laughs> it's like all gray and cloudy, and he's like gasping for air. It's almost you know he's near death for the last forty five minutes, and they just sail off. Anyway, that was my take. I think we all kind of share the same opinion. Well, I'm glad you both react so strongly to this. I want to talk a little bit about the popular angles. So on the one hand, this movie is based on three novels, probably written at the early 20th century, sometime about then. And probably one of the main reasons that these novels were written was to popularize the biblical narrative for people. So the Catholic Church, you know, you, you would have had readings in Latin for the most part, so people would not... Uh, have easy access to the details of the biblical narrative. Um, but even the Bible in English is somewhat inaccessible. You couldn't read the Bible at the beach, so to speak. I mean, normally, you know, you go on vacation or something. To put the biblical stuff into a, a novel form or like a pulp fiction is a way to disseminate it. And you can argue about whether that's helpful in the end, because it does sort of vulgarize it and make it uh, more cartoonish, perhaps. So, you know, this is one of the big criticisms of this kind of movie. But on the one hand, there are similar criticisms made of the Bible itself. I mean, this is pretty esoteric, perhaps. One of the main biblical scholars of the 20th century uh, Rudolf Bultmann said that you know the Bible needed to be demythologized it needed to be you know, stripped of uh, a lot of its content that seemed too fantastical for the modern man you know, reduced to a kind of existentialism about being free and stuff like this so he, you know, people like Boltmann speak for the modern man and think that the, the Bible needs to be updated. But, you know, this film translates a lot of the Bible, at least in its spectacle and, and some of its, like, storytelling manner, uh, to the big screen. And it's wildly successful. Uh, I would think that, you know, there wasn't a big fall in... Uh, the faith of the American people after this film. Like, this is kind of Boltmann's thesis that modern man can't believe Bible stories just simply presented. But I would think that people were, you know, kind of, at least initially, supported in their faith by a film like this. And that's sort of why we still watch some of this movie in religion class. I don't know. So I guess Boltmann's thing about people being too sophisticated for the Bible... And, you know, most people need to to encounter the Bible, or it could be argued, uh, through some kind of presentation like this. I totally agree with that. Um, and I found myself kind of coming away with the same sense that it's just like, okay, wow, this is the Exodus story um, told in a, in a very popular way, um, just in a way that makes sense to your average Christian. And um, it's it's good to pit that view that that um, presentation of the Exodus story against someone like Boltmann as you know kind of maybe representative of the overall historical critical method that was you know really in vogue um, 
in that part of the century. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it kind of puts the lie to that claim that like, okay, we, now we need to strip the Bible of the supernatural in order to make it accessible to the modern man. It's like, that's, that's not true. This is the enduring vision of what the Exodus story is, that it has, has these elements of the hugely miraculous. And that's what's going to endure. I was actually thinking this about a similar reflection about the whole Chosen series, right, in the Gospels. And, you know, it's just interesting because, yeah, now here we are in 2023, having lived through like a full century, really a century plus of that attitude of biblical scholarship, of trying to um, to demythologize the Gospels, to strip away the elements of the supernatural, to kind of create a Jesus that's for our time, right? Kind of with a huge emphasis on the human and not the divine. And uh, okay, it's like, okay, you can do that for 150 years, but when all is said and done, what's going to happen? Well, average Christians are going to make a TV series about Jesus, which is just the straight up rendition of the Gospels as they're presented with this mysterious fusion of the divine and the human, the commonplace and the miraculous. I have a story about American catechesis. Do I have both of your permission to tell this? Go ahead. My cousin, uh, pretty good Catholic education, Steubenville, Ohio, all the way through college, moved to Pittsburgh. He and his wife had their first baby. Just a funny story about this story of the Exodus. So they had to sit in on a baptism class in some church in Pittsburgh. And the lady running the class gathered together, you know, like five or six couples and their new babies, and they're sitting there. She's like, so we're going to begin with the Old Testament roots of the sacrament of baptism. She's like, now there was a leader who led his people through the Red Sea out of Egypt. Does anyone know who that was? And everybody's like, my cousin's like, uh, yeah. But everybody's sitting around awkwardly. And so she doesn't, so nobody answers. So she calls on this random Pittsburgh dad. And she's just like, Brian. He's like, yeah. (laughs) And she says, Brian, do you know who that was who led people through the Red Sea? And Brian goes, yeah, um... Yeah, I have no idea. (laughs) Which, I'm not evaluating American Catholicism solely based on Brian. Um, But I do think there's the opposite risk of like, yes, there's a Boltmann extreme of, hey, demythologize everything. But you can also go in the opposite extreme where everything's so cartoonish and fairy tale that people actually write it off because they're just like, these are children's stories, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think... Where I've come to, I mean, this is the historical critical method under Pope Benedict XVI and others. You know, we have a friar who just wrote a book, The Quest for the Historic Christ, Anthony Gembrone. The people that have been the most scholarly at the Bible, I'm obviously not at their level, but there is like, there is like a middle sense, which again is not readily portrayed in movies, but there's this middle sense of like real miracles happened, true wonders, but it's not like we see in the Ten Commandments, the CGI swirl up on up on Mount Sinai, which turns into a pillar of fire. I mean, I had the privilege that, of watching this scene with Father Allen because he's visiting here, and you were there were sound effects. You're like, oh, okay, because there's like lasers thrown from the pillar of fire onto the Ten Commandments, and then the and like even take the basic stuff like 
Some of those details in Exodus are gnarly. Like Moses comes down, he sees the people in revelry around the golden calf. He grinds the golden calf down to powder, pours it into the stream, and makes them drink the water. Like it's this really weird and wild punishment. But here he just like gives a speech on a hilltop, throws the tablets. They collide with the golden calf, which explodes in a sea of sparks. You know, it's like... I love the Bible stories more and more when I have that sense of God's real interaction involving miracles, but I like that the text, the, the, the first medium itself, like the book of Exodus or the book of Numbers, I still prefer that, I mean, that's God's chosen medium, to really dig deeply into a lot of the popular mediums, translating this to movies or to film of any sort, like television. I'm okay not being satisfied with the popular mediums, because I'm digging deeper into the first medium, which is the text itself, which leaves a lot of room for mystery. Like, I, I'm, I'm more satisfied not knowing how it happened to Moses, right? The Ten Commandments, God writing them himself. I'm satisfied that it's a miracle, but it's shrouded in mystery. I'd rather have that than sort of some, like, depiction of God appearing and writing. It's just, I, I almost think you should leave certain mysteries alone. Certain things like the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus healing a blind man, these are like more easily translated to film, right? Because they're out in the. But there are certain Old Testament mysteries, which I still believe in, but I, in a scholarly, historic way, leave room for okay, there are literary devices. God did, when it says God, I mean, this is responsible reading of the text. When it says God said this, God said that, that's a literary device. Sometimes it may have been a clear locution, sometimes it may have been the patriarch discerning God's message in his heart. When it comes down to all of those Old Testament details, I think we the scholar the, the best Catholic historic scholarly opinion is, you know, maybe some of the numbers, how old these people were, how many came out. Like there are certain literary devices, exaggerations, storytelling elements, but still real miracles and mysteries happening. And you do as a like a film director, even if you were going to be more skeptical or more faithful you still kind of take this role of interpreter like and I'd rather not take the role of interpreter right I'd rather leave these things in mystery but you do have to kind of come down on the specifics if you're putting yeah. this into film which I think is kind of the a slight affront to the text always, well and it's the drawback always. of the film film medium right because the film medium demands that you show in actual detail what is happening in a very literal kind of way. And um, that's, in a sense, like I would argue, that in to- again, in total agreement with you, that that's kind of doing a little bit of violence to the genre, so to speak, of the Pentateuch and how the Pentateuch comes across to the reader. It's, it's, it's proper appropriation. It's, it's, it's proper reading is um, in silence and in contemplation of the few details that were given. And to try to render it in exact factual way, the way that a film medium demands, it just it's it kind of comes across um, somewhat ridiculous. So one thing I feel I have to say is brought up in what is it the first chapter of the Spirit of the Liturgy, a famous book by Cardinal Ratzinger. Uh, he says that it needs to be remembered that the reason, the primary reason that the Israelites were brought out of Egypt was not political freedom, but the ability to worship correctly. So they couldn't worship God in the way that they were supposed to because it was 
abhorrent to the Egyptians. Even in the Bible, Moses says, we need to leave and go out to the desert in order to offer sacrifice. There's some suggestion that maybe worshiping the God of Israel involved sacrificing animals which were revered in Egypt. So like the golden calf is it's suggested is, is some kind of Egyptian deity or sacred object. So the worship, the proper worship of the, of the true God is offensive to idolaters and therefore they needed to leave. So, but in the film, just the political freedom, freedom from slavery is really the, the prominent accent. And that's very American coming out of World War II. We have the history of slavery. And then, uh, well, I should mention too, just the, the Revolutionary War. You know, America starts by throwing off uh, supposed tyranny by appealing to God. So the Declaration of Independence talks about how God has created us with rights and therefore we can resist earthly rulers uh, if they step outside of that basic framework. Moses you know, says that, yes, I brought you out here for liberty, but liberty is not incompatible with the commandments of God. It's actually necessarily correlated. And so America is in a, many people have made this, point America is in a a difficult spot culturally because first of all we don't we don't think too much about God. We don't remember the God of the Declaration of Independence or the God of the Pledge of Allegiance or something like that. You know, God is not allowed in public schools. We also forget the basis for law uh, for human law in natural law. The rights that the creator has given to human beings are more fundamental than the rights or whatever that that are granted merely by human governments. So there's been a sort of a drift away, first of all, from the Ratzingerian point of view that human life and human freedom are based on orientation to God. But there's also been a drift away even from this this, uh, movie's point of view, which is that law and freedom are not inimical. I would only add to what you're saying, Father Allen, is like, this is very much just a pared down tale of freedom. I think that's right. Um, It's basically Exodus 1 through 14. They don't even sing the full song in Exodus 15. I mean, if you want to get the full Moses, you have to have Leviticus, right? The details of liturgy, the details of setting up the tabernacle. Moses is basically like a priest. He's leading worship. They don't show Moses as a man of prayer. He's mostly just a figure giving speeches. And then you also miss the the book of Numbers, the final sermons of Deuteronomy. I mean, I don't, I don't think it does justice even to Moses as like actually an historic figure. Even if you don't believe in the God of Israel or monotheism, it's still just this human figure, Moses, is highly curtailed, highly soap opera-fied, um, which, again, I found entertaining. I mean, it's, it's funny to me at the River Nile, these women acting like California girls and they're just like Ramsey's looked at me this way it's, it's like it's it is kind of entertaining to have like you know kind of be in Egypt for a while but the movie stays in Egypt way too long to even do Moses as an historic figure justice as a man of prayer liturgy just just what he actually was like that's my take I'll, well, I'll just say, first of all, just that I totally agree with um, you, Father Allen. I was noticing that, like, you know, with the Ten Commandments scene, um, it's like, well, what about the Ark? And what about worship? 
you know? And it's like, that's the impression the movie gives that um, it's all about the Ten Commandments. And that in, is indeed a kind of pared down version of Christianity that, okay, well, what did Christianity give us? What is the, the contribution of Christianity to the modern world? Well, it gave us um, the Ten Commandments. It's all, the religious Christian life is all about the law. Um, it, and there, and you really lose um, the essence of of our faith, which is no that it's it's about being able to worship God. So um, yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, but also, yeah, it does um, at least get a good interpretation of the law, which is you know there's that very explicit line where it says yeah there's no freedom without the law. Um, for a closing thought, I guess. Uh, one thing that I'll end on just on a good note is um, just I like the way that it present that the film presents the rediscovery of God. So, um, you know, you really get the sense when you read Genesis um, and Exodus that, yeah, God introduces himself to Abraham, um, Isaac, Jacob come to know him. But then, you know, this the story really skips forward between Joseph and Moses right in the beginning of Exodus and so um, you do have this sense in those first chapters of Exodus that the people are dimly aware of having of their ancestors having met um, some Lord God but they really don't experience him in their everyday life and so when Moses encounters God and then when Moses explains this new God to the people, you really do have the sense in the scriptures themselves of the people kind of rediscovering this strange God who introduced himself to their forefathers. And I thought the movie does that very well. Um, they literally refer to him, both the Israelites do and the um, Egyptians do. They refer to God as this desert God, which, you know, is absolutely right, right? That, that, that is how God comes to them um, there in Egypt, as this strange desert God, or kind of a wild, unsubdued God who's not bound to this or that great city and who's leading the people into the, the wilderness of the desert to create a totally new covenant and a new people for himself. So next time, we're going to go light and talk about Roman Holiday, which I suppose is Audrey Hepburn's first film. It's one of her first films, one of okay. her very, very early films before she yeah. Okay. All right. Well, until then, 